got a really important question for you. Have you ever done something so bad that you felt enormous guilt? I'm not sure about you, but I have done so many things throughout my life in which I've done things and I'm like, oh, why did I do that? And the weight of the guilt was almost unbearable. Like, what can I do to get rid of this guilt that I feel? So when I was younger, I remember one time I brought home a really bad report card. And I thought, I am going to get in so much trouble with my parents because of this report card. And so I began to think and strategize as to how I could talk my way out of trouble. So here's what I did. I came up with a treaty a financial document in which I wrote down on a formal piece of paper, you know, the kind that you rip out of a notebook and it's got the fringes on the side. And I wrote down this. For every good grade, Kenneth Bruce gets 50 cents. And for every bad grade, Kenneth Bruce will give 50 cents. And so finally my dad comes home from work And I have in my hand this financial treaty in three dollars and quarters. (laughs) And I hand them over to my dad. He reads the document, looks at the money, and goes, that's not how this works. For people today who do something so egregious, Sometimes we look for ways to get the guilt off of us. We make these big promises to God. God, I'll go to church every Sunday. God, I will never cuss again. God, I promise that I'm going to give away all of my possessions to the poor, and I'm going to solve world hunger, okay? But you see, it's as if when we read the scriptures, God sees all of these empty promises that we can't and won't keep and says, that's not how this works. You see, instead of us making promises to God, he makes a promise to us that if we repent and we trust in his son, that is where we experience complete and total forgiveness of our sins. And that's what we see being driven home in Acts chapter 2. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. And turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're jumping back into our sermon series as a faith family called Sent. We're studying the book of Acts together as followers of Christ. Uh, What we see throughout the book of Acts is that not only has God sent his son for us in the gospel, we see in Acts chapter 1 that God sent his spirit to be among us and within us. We see that he sent his apostles out to go and to preach, and God has sent us out to the nations and our neighbors with the gospel. The book of Acts is volume 2 of a two-volume set. The the author is Luke, who wrote in his gospel, The Life and Ministry of Jesus. We see it begins, Luke chapter 1, with the birth of Jesus, and it ends in Luke 24 with the ascension of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, he picks up at the ascension, giving us details in volume 2 that he didn't give us in volume 1. And he gives us the the apex of the entire uh, book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
where it says Jesus told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus then ascends up into heaven, sits down at the right hand of God the Father. From that point on, the disciples are gathered together. They're praying together. They begin to identify the candidate to replace Judas Iscariot to become the 12th uh, apostle, the 12th disciple. That becomes Matthias. We then begin to see where they're gathered together. They're praying together. And then we have Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where in this moment, the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles just as Jesus said he would. And as the, uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon God's people, they begin speaking in tongues. They begin speaking in these foreign languages that are intelligible to those around them. As these visitors who were from all over the world have gathered there, verse 5, people from every nation under heaven are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And these blue-collar Galileans are speaking their own heart language. And they're hearing them testify the gospel to them in their own language. Now, some people began to mock these disciples and say, they're drunk. But Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up and he preaches the gospel. Okay, so where did this take place? Well, I want to show you. Up on the screen, I'm going to show you the southern steps. You guys thought I was done showing you pictures of Israel, didn't you? I'm just getting warmed up. These are the southern steps, just outside the temple on the southern side. This is a place where teachers of the law would gather crowds and begin to teach. This is probably the location where Jesus was at the age of 12 when he was in Jerusalem. His parents are frantically looking for him. He was probably here at the southern steps asking and the, the teachers of the law, peppering them with questions, and they're amazed by his understanding. This is also the location where Jesus would stand up and preach great truths about the kingdom. And this is probably the location where Acts chapter 2 takes place, where 3,000 plus people are gathered together to hear this sermon from Simon Peter. And Peter lays the responsibility of Jesus' death squarely on the shoulders of these Jews. Look at verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So what are these people to do with their guilt for killing the Messiah? Well, this is where we see happening in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. The scripture says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. What do we do with our guilt? This was the question of these first century Jews in Acts 2 who were responsible for the death of Jesus. And the answer that Simon Peter gives is stunning. 
complete and total forgiveness is available through the very one whom they crucified. This morning, I want you to notice in the text what all people must do to experience complete and total forgiveness of sin. The first is this. You must feel the sharp conviction of the Holy Spirit. Feel the sharp conviction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That phrase pierced, it means to stab or to cut. The Holy Spirit brought a quick, startling, unforeseen grief like a jolt of lightning that they did not see coming. These Jews are shocked by the indictment that they are responsible for the death of the Messiah. They feel the weight of conviction over what they've done to the author of life. So who are the parties responsible for the death of Christ? Well, as we study the scriptures, we know that it was Judas Iscariot who was responsible. It was Pontius Pilate who was responsible. It was the Roman soldiers who were responsible. It was the Jewish leaders who were responsible. It was the Jewish people who were responsible. And ultimately, we know that God is responsible for the death of Christ. But make no mistake, y'all, we are responsible for the death of Christ. We see this throughout the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. In 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life for us. You see, it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was our rebellion that stapled our Savior to the tree. You see, you must first understand that the cross was done by you before you can value what the cross has done for you. You must first understand that the cross was done by you before you can value what the cross has done for you. And when you realize that it was you who have nailed Christ to the cross, that it was your sin that nailed Jesus, the Holy Spirit brings conviction into your heart. You see, before you can come into the kingdom, this is the first thing you must experience. You must first admit that you are a sinner. And for the proud, this is the hardest step. The first step is the hardest. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And for those who are too proud to confess their own sin, the Lord will not grant them repentance. You see, you must first see yourself as lost before you can see yourself as found. You must first realize that you're a sinner before you can be saved. You must understand that you're in bondage before you can rejoice in freedom. And these Jews, they felt the weight of their sin, but also the fear of the Messiah's coming wrath. Peter quotes Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35 and points to a coming day when the Messiah's enemies will be a footstool under his feet. That indeed judgment is coming for all who have rebelled against God. And the Bible makes it clear that is the whole world. 
We have all turned our back upon him. All of us have gone our own way. The question is this, do you feel the weight of your sin against God? Because the Spirit brought to your mind and your heart the offense of your disobedience against the Lord. If you don't know Christ, I hope that you would allow the Spirit to convict you of your sin. That you would feel the weight of your disobedience against a holy God. And that there is no act of penance that you can ever do to atone for your sin. That church attendance cannot save you. Good works cannot save you. Beating yourself up for your past cannot save you. There's no amount of money that can ever pay back God for your rebellion. So preacher, what do we do? Pastor, what do I do? That's the question that's being asked in verse 37, which is number two, turn away from your sin. Peter says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance means a changed mind that leads to a changed life. Repentance means you agree with God regarding your sin. You're acknowledging your guilt You change your mind on how you think about your sin and that then changes the direction of your life. It means this, when you repent, you are in essence taking sides with God against yourself. You change the way that you view your sin and it changes the trajectory of your life. It's a complete 180. It's a U-turn that you take. When I was 16, my parents were teaching me how to drive, and I had a soccer tournament up in Ohio, and so I'm driving up there as a 16-year-old with my mom in the passenger seat. And on this long interstate drive, she falls asleep. While she's asleep, we come to a fork in the road, and I chose the wrong one. 30 minutes after a really good nap, my mom wakes up and says, we're not where we're supposed to be. So I pulled over, we got the map out, we realized where we had gone wrong, why, we, (laughs) where I went wrong, and we made a U-turn to get back on the right path. That's a picture of repentance. It's when we get off of the path towards Christ, we ignore the instruction manual, we go our own way. But then the Spirit wakes us up. He convicts us. "Uh Uh-oh, you are headed in the wrong direction. You're in trouble. You're headed for destruction. And we realize, we went back to the book, the manual. Oh, we're headed in the wrong direction. U-turn. Let's go back to our ultimate destination. And that is a picture of what God calls upon you and for me. Is that outside of Christ, we're going our own path. We're going our own way, away from the Lord, going our own desired way, following the desires of our hearts, which always leads to destruction. And there's got to come a point in which we must have a U-turn. That's repentance. It's a change of your mind, like I'm going the wrong way. I don't want to go this path anymore. I'm going to turn and go towards Christ. This is repentance. 
And y'all, this is the message of John the Baptist. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of Simon Peter. And y'all, it must be our message as well. In a culture that does not see a need to repent, in a culture, in a world that says, I'm living my truth going my own way, who are you to tell me I'm supposed to change? And for some, they may be tempted to change the message to make it more palatable. God has not given us the freedom to do that. We've got to be faithful to say what God says in his word. And Peter says, repent, turn, don't go that path. It leads to destruction. And with love in our hearts and compassion in our eyes, we must stand firm on this call to repent and go the path of Christ. But y'all, the reality is this. This is not a popular path. Jesus told us this. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Oh, today, if you don't know Christ, would you please choose the hard road? Would you choose the narrow path? Would you not go the way of the many? Would you be willing to forsake popularity and acceptance in the eyes of this world so that you might be faithful unto Jesus? The acceptance of Jesus is far more important and far more eternal than the acceptance and the fleeting acceptance of this world. Go to Christ. Follow His path. Be willing to be hated and rejected for faithfulness to Him. For this is the path that leads to life. And few find it. Any path you walk that's not towards Christ and with Christ, it leads to death. But you see, as followers of Jesus, repentance is not one and done. As followers of Jesus... Repentance is a regular habit in spiritual discipline. If I can say it like this, as followers of Jesus, we are to be professional repenters. That we never grow beyond the need of turning away from sin and returning back to the grace that's found in Jesus. That we are to be those who are continually, when we walk away from Jesus, the Spirit brings conviction And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we turn away from that and we return back to Christ. Can I say to my dads in here, may you be the chief repenter in your home. May you set the pace in your household of saying, repentance begins with me. I need to turn from sin and return to Christ to make him my first love. That I'm seeking to obey him and to model humility and the gospel before watching children and a watching wife. Last night, Christy and I were up late having a really hard conversation in which she was graciously and lovingly pointing out blind spots in my heart. Attitudes, postures in my heart that don't look like Jesus. And so I told her, I said, I I need to repent. And so there we were in our living room. I got on my knees and I was like, Lord, I want to repent of these attitudes. I don't want this area of pride to creep into all of my life. And so, Lord, I want to repent of that. And I want to return back to the grace that's available in you. See, as your pastor, I need to be the chief repenter. 
I want to set the pace for our faith family. You see, maturity as a believer does not mean perfection. Maturity means you're fast to repent. And the more you mature, the faster you are repenting. Because the conviction comes faster and you realize, ah, that's not the way of Jesus. Those words I just spoke did not look like Christ. And so the Spirit brings conviction, you confess, you repent, and you return. And you keep walking with Christ. And this is the pattern of our lives as followers of Jesus. This is what maturity looks like, is we're continually turning from sin and returning back to Christ. We're saying no to sin and to self and returning back to our Savior. And the beauty of the gospel is that it's the cross of Christ that has made a way for you to continually keep coming back. That there is no sin that you have committed thus far in your life that prevents you from coming back to Jesus. That no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what's in your heart, when you repent and come to Jesus, he receives you, he washes you and makes you clean. It's amazing to me that the qualification to come into the kingdom is to say, I don't deserve to be here. And God says, that's the heart I'm looking for. Someone who realizes they don't deserve my grace. And that's who I love to lavish my grace upon. It's not the proud. It's not the religious. It's not those who put on a facade. It's those who humble themselves and they bring their sin into the light. And can I say to you this, this morning as I was reviewing this passage and this message, I was praying, God, would you create this culture in our church? That we're a group of people that when sin takes place, our knee-jerk reaction isn't gossip. It's not slander. It's not beating someone down. It's that we would be a church that has a culture of repentance and grace. That you're like, oh man, you mess up too? Get in here right? Like that's who we are. We're a bunch of people, y'all. We're all messed up. It's the person who says, I've got it together and I'm not messed up. I'd say, we need to talk. This is why we need the grace of Jesus. This is why I'm, I'm praying, God, would you create a culture amongst us in which we can wisely and yet graciously confess sin to one another and not fear what's going to happen afterwards? But it's we're together saying, man, I, I just, I blew it this week. I can't believe I'm thinking this way. Or, or you lovingly have people in your life saying, hey, you're going the wrong path. I see this pattern of behavior, this pattern of language. It's coming out of your life. It doesn't look like Jesus. I want to invite you to repent. And it's not a repent with anger and a clenched fist. It's, it's, it's repent with compassion and tenderness saying, man, I'm with you. And we're not perfect yet. We will be at the resurrection, but we're not there yet. And so let's daily deny ourselves, pick up our cross, follow Jesus together, and let's follow hard after him. That's the pattern we see throughout scripture. So we feel the sharp conviction of the Holy Spirit. We repent, and then it's number three, we follow Jesus. In verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized. That word for baptized, it means to immerse. It means to dip. It means to be submerged. Now, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. 
We just got to see it a few minutes ago in the heart and life of Ava, a seven-year-old girl who gave her life to Jesus. And she is publicly declaring on the outside what Jesus has already done on the inside through faith in Christ. And you see, when you're baptized, you're publicly declaring, I'm following Jesus. Now, we have to be clear here, y'all. Because I, we need to tackle something that I think is really important here. Acts 2.38 is not teaching baptismal regeneration. This text is not teaching that baptism saves you. Okay, Baptism does not save you. Faith in Jesus Christ saves you. Believing that being baptized underwater, that it saves, that's lazy hermeneutics. It takes verses like Acts 2.38 out of their context, and it doesn't take the time to dig in and see how this text fits within the overall narrative of Scripture. You see, if baptism saved you, what about the thief on the cross? If baptism saves you, why did Jesus never baptize anybody? In John chapter 4, verse 4, it says Jesus never baptized. His disciples did, but Jesus did not. If baptism saves you, why does Paul say, I'm so glad I only baptized a few of you? In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, he says, God has not called me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism is not what rescues. That water over there is alabaster's finest. You drink it every day. Paul says in Romans 4, 5, whoever believes on him, believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, not his baptism, his faith is credited for righteousness. You see, it's not our works that saves us. It's not our baptism according to anything we have done. These Jews are asking, verse 37, what must we do to be saved? And the answer is nothing. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to rescue yourself from the danger that you're in. Someone has to do the perfect work for you. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, who lived a perfect sinless life that you and I couldn't live. And he died a perfect sacrificial death on the cross. And he was raised as the perfect resurrected king who defeats the grave. And anybody who trusts in his perfect work and not their own, guess what? You are rescued. You're saved. So how do we respond? Jesus said it like this in John 6, 29. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Jesus says this. This is the work of God that you believe. If you want to do something, do this. Believe in the one he has sent. See, the work that God has asked you to do is to believe upon Jesus Christ and what he's done for you in the gospel. But lest you and I begin to think that it's our faith, it's our doing this, Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter two. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. If we were able to save ourselves by our good works, we would point to the name on the back of the jersey. We would say, look how awesome I am. Look at all the good things I do. Look at how I saved myself. And then we rob God of glory. 
but so that you and I may not rob him of glory. God does all the work for us on our behalf. God is the one who saves. God is the one who rescues. Jonah tells us that salvation is of the Lord. And the gospel is good news. It's a free gift of salvation to all who believe. Now, ultimately, it's the Lord who saves. Verse 39 It is the Lord our God is the one who calls. Lest anybody think that they can save themselves. Salvation's of the Lord. It's whom the Lord calls. He's the one who rescues. And yet, we are accountable and responsible for either receiving or rejecting this gospel message. It's a free gift. It's yours for the taking. The question is, will you take it? you receive this free gift that God is offering you through his son, Jesus. It's yours for the taking. It's like this. Forgiveness of sins is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Man, this is such good news. Isn't the gospel just beautiful? It's wonderful. You don't have to be awesome. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be attractive. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be smart or strong or winsome or funny or even popular. Anybody can get in on this. You just have to humble yourself and say, God, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I need grace. And he says, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. Look at verse 39. It says, for the promise is for you and for your children. Kids can get in on the gospel. In fact, we must become like children, Jesus says, for us to get into the kingdom. He says in Matthew 18, 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we've got to see ourselves as weak and needy like children. We've got to see ourselves as those who are spiritually and morally bankrupt before we know Christ. We've got to realize, I've got nothing. Our children, they know they don't have anything. Everything they have is ours. And yet we think that because of all the stuff that we've done and the hard work and the labor, we begin to think, oh, man, I can do this on my own. Children realize, I don't have anything. I need Jesus. And he says, that's exactly right. That's what you have to become like. This gospel is so accessible that anybody can get in on this. Look again at verse 39. It says, and for all who are far off. Here Peter is is, is referencing Gentiles. People like me and you who are not Jewish. People like me and you who do not have Abraham's pedigree or blood going through our veins. We too can get in on the gospel. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2. That before we knew Jesus, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ah, it's such good news that you can come to Jesus. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be perfect. You just come as you are to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will receive you. Anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ, you will be received. 
In fact, that's the impact point I want to challenge you with today. Your takeaway, the thing I want to challenge you to do is today, turn from your sin and follow Jesus with all of your heart and life. This is the invitation. To say, I'm, I'm done playing games with God. I'm no longer going to be trusting in myself or in my goodness or in everything that I've done. I'm going to say, Jesus, I can't do this. I need your grace, and he will receive you. This king had everything he could ever want. And one night, he's up on a balcony overlooking his city and sees a woman bathing. And from there, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet who calls him out for his sin. And then David responds with humility, repentance. Here's what I'd like for us to do in closing. I want us to take some time now to posture our hearts in prayer. I want to invite you to get comfortable. I'm going to read Psalm 51 over you. I want you to hear this cry of repentance from this king who sins just like me and you. 